they come out of the forest, uh, hunt the street dogs in the streets where people live. And as soon as they catch something, they go back into the forest uh, to spend the day there, away from humans. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. We are taking a one-week break from the British Uplands podcast series, which I hope you have all been enjoying. We certainly had a lot of comments, and if you haven't heard it for some reason and you're just suddenly dipping back in now, the last three episodes were a very special series where I traveled around the country with Sarah Roberts to explore one very simple question. What is the future of the British Uplands? Uh, it's a very highly produced show, lots of interviews, lots of field audio, uh, really nicely designed. And although I've had lots of feedback already, I would love to hear your thoughts. But this is the last in the series from the front lines, which we started some weeks ago. It is a series presented by Rocky Talkie. This is episode four. And if you haven't heard the first three, you are missing out. So skip back a few shows and hear about the intricacies and complexities of rhino conservation from Alex and Annette Olsa and John Banovich, and how difficult it is to protect wildlife reserves in Tanzania with Derek Hurt. Rocky Talkie, who have made this series possible, are backcountry radios designed by a small team in Denver. The radios are extremely rugged and very easy to use, super compact, weigh under eight ounces. They have a range of one to five miles in the mountains and over 25 miles line of sight. The cold resistant battery lasts around three to five days, even at minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit and can be recharged on the go by USB-C, which is incredibly important for me because I'm always battling with the million charges that I have to take. And these have been on every single film shoot that I have been on in the last six months since I received them. They've been incredibly valuable. You can get 10% off a set of Rocky Talkie radios by heading over to rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. rockytalkie.com forward slash into the wilderness. Go and check them out. They're brilliant. If you're looking for a new set of radios, I can highly recommend them. In this episode, I speak to Hannah and Jonah from Biking for Biodiversity as they journey around the world meeting conservationists fighting the good fight to keep wildlife in our landscape while balancing the relationship between people's needs and the needs of nature. They are on an incredible journey and I encourage you to check them out and follow their work biking for the number four biodiversity.org. Org, and they are also on the socials. And lastly, before we get to their interview, which by the way, they were in Bangladesh when I recorded this. So every now and then you're going to hear the beep of a horn behind them because they were in the they were in the the town. Uh, but it's a fantastic conversation nonetheless. The last thing to say before we get into that interview is a big shout out to this week's top tier patrons who include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speaker of Body Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Dick X, Roman, Mark Zabrowski, and Leslie Cumming. Thank you so much for your support and everyone else who supports on Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. Your support helps me make the more complex, more involved shows possible, like uh, the British Upland series, which if I explain to you how much work that series was, I don't think I could do it justice. It was basically like making three 25-minute films to this point. Um, there's not a lot of difference in the work required other than maybe coloring the pictures because we have to 
pulled together all the different audio from all the different interviews and it's a lot of work but incredibly rewarding and I think we've had a, we've created a brilliant show which I hope could um, as easily have appeared on the BBC as it could have done on this podcast so thank you for your support you helped make these things possible and I hope you enjoy this fantastic conversation Hannah, Jonas, welcome to the Insta Wilderness podcast. Tell me, where in the world are you? Because you were somewhere, I think, across Europe when you first reached out to me. You're a long way from Europe now. Yes, we are. Yeah, yeah. It's great that we finally get the chance to talk. Uh, we're currently in the capital of Bangladesh, in Dhaka. Uh, yeah, I think when we reached out, we, maybe we're still in Georgia or Armenia. So it's been a long time. Uh, yeah, and now we are... Almost done with our over six months in South Asia, heading to Southeast Asia soon. Let's take a step back a second because I just realized no one's going to understand how you got there. <laughs> <laughs> you're, are, you, you're, are you both biologists or is one of you an ecologist and one of you a biologist? So we are both ecologists, uh, well, both wildlife biologists actually, uh, and also now declared ourselves as cyclists, basically. So I can, Well, I think that's totally fair. <laughs> Yeah, so basically we we studied uh, wildlife biology and then worked in the field in, in Europe. And uh, the uh, short story is that eventually after a few years, we decided that we don't get enough uh, knowledge in the work that we were doing about what is really happening in nature conservation all across the world. And we came up with this idea of, okay, like let's see it for ourselves. Um, we always loved adventure. We always loved um, living simply and pushing our limits and doing outdoor sports and also obviously being in nature. So we kind of came up with the with this project, this initiative that we named Biking for Biodiversity. We started cycling 15 months ago and um, crossed 14 countries and in every country we meet, we meet nature conservationists who do some really amazing work. I, I think we almost need, we're going to need a longer show to start going through all the awesome people you've met. But what a, what a great name and what a great uh, initiative, Biking for Biodiversity. Uh, this is a perfect, because so this, this episode is going to be the last episode of four from a series that I've been doing called From the Front Lines, where I've been with people sort of on the front lines of conservation. So actually all th the first three of the four episodes, I was in Africa. And so I recorded those there and I sat down with these people doing amazing work. So I'm kind of getting you to do this job for me in this episode because you've been with people on the front lines of conservation. Uh, where... How did you decide your route? Like, where did you go first? Who was the first person or the first initiative uh, that you sought out on your journey? Yeah, so I'm from Germany. Hannah is from Slovakia. We met in Austria working for an NGO there. Uh, so that's where our journey started. We decided to start from my parents' place. And then we thought, okay, which direction do we go? In the beginning, we weren't even sure. Are we going to go to Africa? Should we go towards the east? And then we decided, okay, we want to go to Singapore. Uh, we want to see Southeast Asia. And then on the way there, we just made it up along the way, basically. <laughs> From our work, we knew some projects that we worked with uh, in Central Europe. And we visited them first. And from there, we just like spontaneously many times decided which route will we take. We asked 
once we met conservationists in one country, we asked them, where should we go next? Do you know anybody that is willing to talk to us, that is willing to meet us? And it just unfolded kind of. And it was also based on our, our curiosity from the very beginning. So we, of course, know some project that we are very interested in. In Europe, uh, it was about the reintroduction of the European bisons in Romania, which really interested us. So we just took the chance to go there and we met conservationists and could join them on tracking the bisons and could really find the herd and then find the male separately as well. And then in the meantime, of course, talk with them and understand what's the whole story behind this work. So tell me about European bison, because I, I imagine most people are kind of semi-familiar with the North American bison story, where they were almost decimated. There was like 100 or 150 or something left. And now there's nothing like the tens of millions that there were before, but there's healthy populations in places and you know they're, they're abundant in Yellowstone and they're outside the park as well. But tell people a little bit about the European bison, because it's... Um, Am I actually correct in saying is it actually bigger? I think the American buffalo or bison is can grow a bit taller because actually okay. the the North American one is more like a prairie species, open grasslands, and the European one lives more in forests, so it's a bit smaller. And because they're also known as a woods bison, aren't they? Yeah, or like bison yeah. is also named as commonly used yeah. in Europe. And the story is actually not so different. So there used to be widespread across Europe, like from Spain all the way to Russia, um, throughout all kinds of forests and more like half open, semi-open habitats. And then they were heavily hunted, um, well, starting in the Middle Ages, I think, already. And then around 1900s, there was only one single population left in the wild in uh, Poland, on what is now the Belarusian border. And I think there were like 20 individuals and then a bunch in captivity all over Europe in zoos, in wildlife uh, reserves or game reserves. And then basically after they were almost completely wiped out, eventually Europe came together. There were different initiatives. Uh, all the zoos started cooperating to breed them from this very small gene pool that was left. And now it's been rewilded in several places. In Europe, so the place we visited in the um, Fagaras Mountains in Romania is actually the only one where they're completely roam-free. So they're not fenced at all. Unfortunately, in all the other places, which is I think around ten at the moment in Europe, they still have some kind of fencing around because people still don't want them to roam into their forests or close to settlements or whatever. Because I actually saw, uh, there was an interesting article, but it, it was a while ago since I read it, so unfortunately I'm not going to be able to give you much detail on it, uh, where they were talking about the reintroduction of bison across Europe and how they were hoping that that was going to play into wildfire mitigation by um, controlling foliage. Did, did they cover that at all? Was that, a, was that a point of discussion where you were? I don't think we talked about that specifically, but of course, uh, things are intertwined. So wildfires and and uh, extreme weather uh, patterns are already hit Europe very, very excessively. And I mean, there are no other large free roaming herbivores left in Europe. So bringing back European bisons to these landscapes is 
is crucial really to to save these forests. So of course it's intertwined, yeah. And then in the, at the same time, uh, yeah, like um, natural old growth forests are also shrink like very small amounts are left in Europe. In Romania, the last old growth forests are um, are being clear cut illegally cut. So it's just a lot of different challenges that hit these last natural landscapes and also the wildlife that would inhabit them. Uh, yeah, it's it's very complex. The, that's that's interesting what you're saying about illegal logging in Romania. I, I think when we think of illegal logging, generally speaking, I, most people are imagining like the Amazon, like deep in South America. So what what's what what are they illegally logging? Is there a certain type of timber, and how big a problem is it? Yeah, that's actually like something that is already very important on our journey. So when you talk about certain problems, people have like certain places in mind. When you just talk about biodiversity in general, people have certain places in mind where there's a lot of biodiversity. But one of our goals with this journey is to show that biodiversity is everywhere, but also the destruction of biodiversity is happening everywhere. And in Romania, there are still some of the biggest old growth uh, beach forests. So forests that are native to Europe that don't occur anywhere else in the world, a very sp special habitat but also has been cut down uh, across Europe. There are only very small patches left. And in Romania, there's still a very big one left in the Carpathian Mountains. Big untouched forest, very beautiful, very important carbon sinks. But because of missing law enforcement, missing monitoring of these forests, unfortunately in many places, illegal logging, of this very valuable but very slow growing wood has been rampant for many decades. Well, I had no idea that that was going on there. And and it's not just, uh, I mean, it's a whole network of like the illegal logging industry. Like what is happening in Romania is actually financed by other Western European countries, right? So like actually... Uh, uh, Sweden was importing this wood and other countries as well, which just did not take the the steps to make sure that they like source uh, wood that has been logged in a sustainable way. So yeah, I think that's a that's a really common problem. If if you if you don't know this, I think a lot of Western companies have taken the approach. If they don't really know where it's coming from then it's okay unless they're explicitly told and then they kind of have to take action. That certainly has been the case in previous decades. I know that um, there was a documentary and they'd, Ikea was one company that was picked up on this. I think they've fixed all that now, um, but historically certainly they were, or they've said they've fixed it anyway, um, but historically certainly I think they were caught out having timber in some of their products that were coming from these um, illegal logging operations in different parts of the world? Yeah, it's been, it's been something that we um, came across in Romania already in our work before, but also we came across in Georgia. That's simply in countries where mm, like the government and the police is not working as well as they should. It just happens easily that wood gets cut illegally, but it's not officially... Like you cannot easily see if you just buy some wood from somebody, you do not know whether it's illegally cut or not. So it's on the companies to check. But that, of course, is extra effort for them. So also I IKEA was involved in that, the big 
Austrian uh, timber company was involved heavily in the Carpathians. And luckily, they were due to the very important work of conservationists and uh, uncovered all of that. Um, they were like taken, like they had to take responsibility for what they're doing and they improved things. Um, I wouldn't say that everything is solved now, but it definitely was a good example of like how important the work is of conservationists to just uncover things and just make them like public. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the European bison project, just to go back to that, that you visited, what is their, what is their hope for the future of European bison across continental <clears throat> Europe, given that there's so many people there? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the idea is that uh, there should be at least islands, different spots across Europe where uh, historically uh, the European bison was native. And in these places, in protected areas, they should roam freely. And in fact, um, they don't, I mean, they don't, they are not going to roam across uh, the whole continent if they have enough um, like a suitable big enough habitat where they are. So if if the populations are managed well, then they are they they can they can roam across a, a landscape without um, running into the issue of of then hum, going into human habitations and such. But it's still very much the fear uh, in Europe uh, human wildlife conflict. Is a big deal, big issue, and regarding the bison reintroduction, it's also one of the biggest fears of communities that these large herbivores will destroy their farmlands and and so on. Mm. Come and eat their roses in the garden. Yeah, it's just important <laughs> to mention regarding this that it's not one universal like European bison project. So there are different NGOs working in different areas um, or other organizations. Yeah working mostly separately from each other, kind of, uh, unfortunately. Introducing bisons in different places that are more suitable or less suitable. And the organization we visited that does it there is called Conservation Carpathia. Um, it's an NGO. And for them, it's part of a big project. So they don't only reintroduce the bison there. They also bought huge pieces of land where these bisons can live, which is like very crucial so they actually can make sure these bisons have enough land where they find enough food so they don't have to roam into anybody's private land. Uh, they reforest areas that have been illegally cut down in that area. And they work with local communities to provide them with livelihoods. They have uh, started brands that market local products. They give them jobs in the replanting or as rangers to monitor the bisons. Okay, to get local buy-in, yeah. I mean, it has to be that way. Every on all the places I've been around the world, when I see conservation action working, it's where you have a committed local community because they're getting something out of it, which is fair. Yes, exactly, exactly. And the further we move from Europe, the more we see that communities are involved in conservation. They are, I mean, it's an integral part of their life. Living, to, living together with wildlife, especially since we arrived to India. It has been a big, big topic, human-wildlife conflict and coexistence, because India now managed to uh, become first like the, <laughs> the uh, most populous, most populous country. country in the whole world. They surpassed China. 
Um, and you can imagine, we certainly had an idea, but could not imagine how really densely populated India really truly is. But it is also extremely biodiverse and has not just some of the most important and, and unique megafauna of the world, but also many other species and biodiversity hotspots. So these really truly coexist and are the source of many conflicts, but also people here or there, now we are not in India, but people there really uh, learned over centuries how to live together with wildlife. I want to ask you more about that. I ha- I've spent a bit of time in India, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but I just so that I don't lose this thread, it was something quite important that you brought up about ha- uh, conservation organizations kind of doing their own thing. Because C- you've seen so many across a huge area of the world now. Do you find, and this has been my experience, is that you'll have some cases where you'll have organizations that are working really well together and they're, they're, they're cross-sharing knowledge so that you don't have to relearn stuff. And then there'll be other instances where I'll be sitting around the campfire doing some other film project and I'll be having these conversations like, I've had these conversations before. This has been done already. Mm-hmm. And organizations are not speaking to some other mm-hmm. organization that has maybe been doing it for 10 years so they don't have to relearn all of the mistakes. And there doesn't seem to be this uh con- connectivity between people trying to achieve the same thing have you found that yeah definitely that's a huge problem that you see um there's a project being done somewhere a lot of lessons are learned and then a report is written and that report just disappears in a drawer somewhere or on some website on the internet where you cannot find it and nobody will know about it um like that's definitely something that needs huge improvement. Just the information exchange between uh, organizations that work in the same area, but also that work in different areas. So you can transfer this lessons to, to another place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated. That's the truth, you know, like how, how do you share information with other people? Of course, the internet makes it much easier, but a lot, a lot still gets lost. Unfortunately, some is because... In organizations, often governmental organizations don't want to share uh, their power. They don't want to share responsibility. But also sometimes, especially big NGOs can do that in a similar way. And that's definitely something we have to overcome if we want to do effective nature conservation across the globe. Yeah, no, definitely. Tell me about Asiatic lions, because this is something that I'm I'm fascinated with. And I know you've you this is a project that you've been to see. I've spent a lot of times with lions in Africa. And I think a lot there'll be many people, if not the vast majority of people on this who are listening to this podcast, who don't know there's actually an Asian lion. Um I don't know a hell of a lot about them. Tell me what tell me what you know and tell me where you went. Yeah, that is a very interesting um, story, conservation story that we managed to cover. Uh, So in fact, yes, Asiatic lions were formerly, uh, had a very big distribution um, across India, Pakistan, I think the Middle East, until the Middle East. All the way to Turkey, like into Europe even. Yeah, into the Mediterranean, basically. And I mean, as always, you know, what happened was overhunting. Um, they were uh, still, they had some pockets of populations in India until the British arrived and did, I mean, what, what we, I mean, yeah, did all the destructions on nature that now are still, people are still uh, suffering from. 
And so the last um, last area for Asiatic lions in the whole world is located in this state in India, which is called Gujarat. And within that, uh, the, the landscape of gear. And that's where um, when they started the lion project, the government of India, there were hun- about 140 individuals left. And now, in the world, that's yeah, it. Yeah, in Gujarat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are now, I think, 12 years later or something, I don't know about that. Uh, now there are almost 700 individuals. Yeah, lions breed quickly if you give them the chance. Like all animals, if you give them yeah. the right conditions, they will reproduce quickly. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean that's that's quite a that's a, that's an that's an amazing um, increase. Are they? How are they dealing with that number of lions in an area? Is the area big enough? Yeah, that's actually coming back to what you said about exchanging information and like sharing. Um, they are spreading around. It's basically from literally one location is slowly spreading out. And there have been several plans to relocate them to other places in India where it would be suitable habitat. Um, but the government of Gujarat blocked all these efforts because they want to keep saying we are the only place in the world that has Asiatic lions still left. Um, so now the population is quite high for that specific area and it would make sense to relocate some of them to other parts of India, also to Pakistan, but that's a whole different political topic. Um, yeah, so it just shows again how politics can get in the way of nature conservation. Even within one country, this is something incredible for us to to learn that, you know, like there can be rivalries that also play in uh, play a part in exchanging wildlife, but within one country, uh, between two states, there is already this blog that Gujarat just basically refuses to share the the la- pride of having lions in their landscapes. That's so sad. Mm, indeed. Yeah, but it was- so did you actually get to see them? Did yeah. you see them in like in in person? <laughs> yes. What are they? Ha- have you seen African lions as well? No, Before? actually, no. But it uh, was, I was, I was, I was going to yeah. ask for a comparison, but I guess you'll be able to do that. I've seen. So, so I, I was in South Africa, and Namibia before, and there I've seen uh, African lions. Um, I they cannot, are, I cannot uh, really give like a clear the, like ex- what. The Asiatic lions are smaller in size. Um, their tail is less bushy, and their mane is less bushy. Basically, smaller of the of the males. And that's kind of like the how the diff, the brief difference in their looks. It was uh, it was a, an interesting situation how we managed to see them. Um, basically, we met with a local organization. We. The, originally, what we had in mind is that we will go to the national park, the Gear National Park, which is the main place to see lions if you're a tourist, and offers uh, safaris. And then we found out that for foreigners, it's extremely expensive to go on these safaris. And in the meantime, uh, we got in contact with this organization who who was really keen on, on meeting with us. And then when we went there, we spent time with them. We learned about the work that they do. And then they said that they can actually take us to a resort for us because 
What is the case with the Asiatic lions is that about one third of them are located within the national park and two thirds are outside the main protected area. So it's actually almost easier to see them outside. Um, so we went with them to this reserved forest and um, we met lion trackers there. And then uh, we talked with them and then they said, well, you know, like, okay. So we told these stories like, now, do you want to see the lions? And we were like, sure, definitely. And, um, and so we just started walking. Uh, one of them had a stick. So we felt very safe that <laughs> there was one guy with a stick. And we just started walking. And uh, I think 10 minutes later from the location where we stopped, um, 10 minutes later, we found three females. And um, eventually with these lion trackers, we could approach them. I think we were 20 meters, 20 meters from them on foot. Oh, amazing. It was crazy. Um, and they didn't do, they didn't mind, basically. There was one pregnant female who moved a bit behind, but the other two did not mind our presence there, probably because there was the lion tracker who they know already very well. But they were extremely chill about, about having humans watching them. And we were, of course, just astonished. Oh, what an experience. Those close encounters with you know, like big predators are, there is something very special about them. And I've been fortunate to have quite a lot with different species and that it's just as magic every time. Yeah, definitely. Also coming back to the bisons, we um, came across the biggest male of the whole population just on the way out of the forest. And it's literally like it weighs over a ton, that animal. And it was like five meters away from the car when we passed and on some hand we think like we don't always want to like break it down to these small moments but in the end they are the some of the things that stick with you the most just seeing wildlife close up like especially big species is just something very special it is and and if that's the thing that makes people care more to do more then that's totally fine by me yeah i agree it's it, it's Either it has to be an emotional connection, some kind of very raw, very deep nature experience that makes you care and do things. Or, I mean, yeah, some people can actually change their behavior based on, on the sheer numbers and statistics, but it usually is the emotional element that, that motivates people. Yeah, totally. So t tell me a little bit more about the human-wildlife conflict in, I mean, I guess there's lots of places in the world that you could touch on that, but I'm thinking particularly of India. Um, I, 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 tigers is the thing that will spring to mind with t tiger conflict. I, I know that there's, in some places there's quite a lot of problems with um, human-elephant interaction as well there. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big, huge problem in Africa. Um, I don't, I've don't, I haven't spent as much time with Asian elephants, but what did you find as you were traveling through the country in this very densely populated, with this densely populated human population about how they're interacting with nature? You mentioned earlier about the, the history that has carried on where people are more used to living in a landscape with uh, big land mammals, but 
there is still issues that occur, that occur. Yeah, in terms of human wildlife conflict, India has definitely been eye-opening for us. Um, human wildlife conflict is a topic everywhere, for sure. <coughs> but in Europe, like we worked on wolves before in Europe and how they are causing conflict. Oh, let's come back to that, definitely. Yeah. But then, then what we are talking about <coughs> is that a few sheep per year are killed by some wolves. That's extent. And then when we came to India, we visited one of the tiger reserves close to the Nepalese border. And there the extent of human-tiger conflict was that several years, several people get killed by tigers and leopards. So it's just on a whole nother, a whole nother level. Um, and then still with what, you know, in, in Europe, it's usually politicized this topic. Like people are winning elections on the topic of the wolf, even though it affects zero point something percent of the population. And then here people lose family members because of the tigers or the leopards, but they still value them as animals that, that belong to this land, that are part of this, this land and that have their space, even though it causes conflict. And that is something that is very deeply rooted in Indian culture and um, Hinduism. Many goddess, uh, gods and goddesses are either have an animal form or they have mounds that are native animals that they are considered holy. And many natural places have a sacred uh, meaning to people. So there's a much deeper connection to that. And also just... Yeah, the taking these sacrifices or accepting them that if you live close with other species, that not only other species will have to suffer, which they do all the time. All the species suffer from human interference, but that it also goes the other way, that you have to accept that sometimes, especially if you come closer and closer to the habitat, that some things will happen. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, did, you, did you actually go to communities where that had happened? Yeah, we visited several communities. We, um, yeah, it's it's about different species. So, where the first that we saw was uh, mainly tiger and leopard conflict, and we heard from people like literally everybody we met in the villages around the tiger reserve could tell us could tell us stories of tigers they've seen in the fields, tigers running through the villages. Um, they showed us videos. They told us stories how they were sleeping on a on their farmland, and the tiger was passing so closely. Uh, how children were taken away. Yeah, everybody has tons and tons of stories like this. Yeah, and then we also dealt with the human elephant conflict, where they told us that the elephants come, they destroy the crops. Uh, then also human bear conflict. <laughs> So the sloth bears, we've met people that were victims of bear attacks, uh, one man that was blinded by a bear. But what also becomes clear is that these attacks don't happen out of nowhere and they don't happen out of viciousness of the animals. And there's reasons. There's uh, people encroaching more and more on habitats, so simply, and also poaching uh, deer species and other prey for the for the predators, which is very important. So they don't find enough food anymore in the forest. They don't have enough space anymore. 
So for these animals, the only solution is to go to fields, to villages, to find something to eat. And then also just wrong behavior about these animals. We met a lot of conservationists in India that uh, focus on educating locals about how to behave in the forest, how, how to behave when you encounter an elephant, when you encounter bear, because practices like throwing firecrackers at them or trying to uh, just intimidate them are very common, but completely counterproductive and often lead to attacks. And also what has to be added regarding the tiger conflict is that it has been uh, proven uh, by many, many cases that actually most of these tigers who attack uh, humans are attacking them because either they are too old uh, or are injured and therefore they are not able to hunt properly in the forest. So they go into the villages or they they are basically at the edge of these farmlands and that's where these conflicts happen. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's that's true in many parts of the world where old and old and injured are often the reason often the reasons for attacks on humans. So what is being done about it then? Is there, apart from the education about how to, how to behave, is there, are there any other measures or organizations working to try and address these issues? Because I imagine you, that can only happen so many times before you're going to end up with retaliations against those those animals. And and, and just, I, I guess the, the other part of that is, is, is some of it well... While some of that issue is human encroachment and taking of their food source, is some of it also because it's kind of been an amazing conservation success? There's a lot more tigers in India than there was 50 years ago, but now they have to wrestle with this success because what do you do? A bit like the lion situation. Uh, what do you do with all these extra tigers that didn't exist 50 years ago? Yeah, that's actually an interesting point. We visited uh, Sanjay Gandhi National Park, which is a national park which is basically situated inside of Mumbai, one of the biggest cities in the world. And there, the, there are leopards there. And the leopard density in this small national park is actually 10 times as high as people would expect on this size of land. And that is because the leopards, nowadays they're made food source are street dogs in the streets of Mumbai. So instead of hunting for deer inside the forest, every evening they come out of the forest, hunt the street dogs in the streets where people live. And as soon as they catch something, they go back into the forest uh, to spend the day there away from humans. So, and also with tigers, luckily India had a huge conservation success, doubling its tiger numbers in the last 50 years. Um, but of course, these increased numbers mean that they also have to look for new habitats. And and the way how India managed to do this also uh, by is by declaring uh, tiger reserves on lands where um, communities were living. You know, many times indigenous communities, and they they were seemingly given an option of either staying there and then coexisting with the growing tiger population or having to be translocated. And in reality, they did not have any options. So in many cases, the the communities were the kind of the victims who didn't have a choice in this, but then eventually they had to learn to live with the, the wild animals that 
yeah, I mean, then grow grew in numbers. Hey, were there any community-based projects that you visited there where the communities were getting direct benefit from existing and, and paying the price in some case? I guess sometimes it's the, the, the life of humans, which is the price, but I'm more thinking about livestock that is lost and the inconvenience of having tigers roaming through your village. Yeah, unfortunately, that's definitely something that the Indian government has neglected uh, for many decades. But nowadays, it is thanks to the work of NGOs and uh, people that are more privately engaged in this. Uh, this is something that is gaining more importance in India as well. We, for example, visited the reserve where... Um, um, where the forest department that is responsible for all nature conservation issues in India, they uh, created a, a group of women that can uh, that is hired as forest uh, forest guide. So they guide um, tourists through that through the reserve and can earn some money with that. So directly have like livelihoods from. Uh, yeah, from the biodiversity that people can see there. Yeah, so basically the only effective way uh, of engaging local communities that we have seen is through nature-based tourism. Because India has managed to capitalize so much on their wildlife uh, that there is really uh, an even ever-growing nature-based tourism and, and this, uh, for, to see these animals. It's interesting. Yeah, I my my experience, my sort of safari experience in India was very I, I was working there and it was before I was really doing a lot of stuff in filmmaking and nature. Um, but it was hyper commercialized and it was it wasn't an amazing experience and we didn't see any tigers. And I'm not surprised we didn't see any tigers with the 30 vehicles that were driving and everybody making so much noise. We were actually in Corbett National Park. Did have you did you go to Corbett National Park? No, we were close to Corbett National Park. Also, uh, as you said, like especially inside the national parks, it's hyper commercialized the tourism, and they like foreigners have to pay a lot. It's a lot cheaper for Indians to visit these national parks, but since we are on this journey for so long and we finance this with our own savings, we have to be very careful with our budget, and we simply cannot afford to pay. $50 or $100 sometimes for a safari in these national parks. So we somewhat stayed away from them. It's awesome. it's not worth it in Corbett, honestly. <laughs> I was a little disappointed. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but equally, you know, and, and maybe that's just me. Like I've been privileged to be in quiet places with very limited you know, um, teams of biologists and conservationists. So I'm somewhat spoiled with regard to that. But it wasn't, I don't think they've nailed their way of doing nature tourism from my limited experience in India. Yeah, that was also our feeling and also probably our privilege as well that uh, we did, I think, one or two safaris maybe where we paid for, I think, one where we paid for the experience. And for us, although we saw a leopard, we saw, I think, also a, a civet cat. Yeah, in Goa. Um, so, so we, we did see wildlife, but it still was just not a great experience, but in parallel, we had the privilege to join conservationists who 
took us on non-official safaris where we just drove through the They're night the best. and yeah. and basically just had fun and forgot about the time and 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 everything. Um, so these were for us much more memorable experiences. But of course, in the end, what I mean, India is is earning a lot. Uh, from this kind of uh, wildlife tourism that is focused on mostly tigers uh, and leopards. And and they have a few of these well-known protected areas where majority of the tourists go. So in in a sense, they managed to do it right. It just might not fit to everyone's taste. (laughs) And it's also something that was so amazing about India that while these national parks are like widely advertised and very famous, they're not the only places where you can see wildlife. Like you really don't have to go there to see amazing wildlife in India. Um, we saw them like in fields. We saw like, I remember the, the second day we were in India, we just cycled through very agricultural landscape. And then first we saw a tree where it was full of vultures, griffin vultures. We've never seen anything like that in our life, like 40 vultures sitting all in one tree. And then an hour later, we came across another tree that was full of fruit beds, like 100 fruit beds in one tree. And these are like wildlife encounters that are very special to us, but they don't, you don't have to go to a national park for that, you know? Like that's something that is a clear difference here in India compared to Europe. You see wildlife everywhere. You see them in cities, you see them in agricultural landscapes not only in reserves. And I suppose you're seeing a lot more of that because you're on a bicycle as well. I mean, you have that really, really lovely quote from Edward Abbey on the, uh, the front page of your uh, your website, who I'm a massive fan of his writing. Um, but yeah, if you got, you got to slow down a bit and zipping, zipping in in a plane and then driving to your destination you miss i mean a lot of people don't have the time to to cycle from months around the world Uh, but you do miss a lot when you when you're just going to a destination to do the thing you miss everything that's in between yeah totally and you don't have to go on months-long expeditions or long long journeys to have these kind of experiences it's just simply traveling by bicycle in whichever distance just allows you to to experience so much more, to have all your senses active, you know? So you like, you see, you smell everything, you like smell all the road-killed animals way before you reach them. Like this is what is happening, you know? Like you notice, you notice all the problems as well. You notice all the uh, all the construction work that makes even difficult, makes it even difficult for you to cross sometimes. So how, how would wildlife manage to do? Um, you manage to um, to experience the terrain, the harshness of the terrain, the harshness of the, of the weather, and then you can also talk with people all the time. Especially we we try to avoid big roads as much as possible. So we have driven through really small small villages in India, in Pakistan, and now in Bangladesh, where they have never seen white people in their whole life. We were the first people there, and. These kind of experiences are extremely unique for us and seemingly also for the people who we meet as well. No, I love that. Immersing yourself in in the local cultures and taking the time to 
appreciate how people exist in those landscapes is I, that's what I gain the most from when I'm in places. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something which you've written quite extensively on your website, and, and I'm curious to see where you've seen this occurring. You've wrote, uh, written about the role of hunting in conservation mm -hmm. and where that works, I guess, where, where it doesn't work. Tell me how you came to that and, and what prompted you to actually clearly spend quite a lot of time explaining this uh, as part of your journey and on your website. Yeah, for us, it's nothing we really were in contact before we started this journey. And we only encountered this, like we knew that trophy hunting, um, which can help conservation exists, but it's nothing we were ever in contact with, you know. Like in Europe, hunting is mostly considered bad by conservationists and there's not money going into conservation for, for hunting. And then when we arrived to Pakistan, it was the first time that we encountered that there are very high amounts of money being paid to uh, hunt certain animals. And this money goes to local communities to conserve the local habitats. And then after writing about it, we realized that it's a topic that people are very interested in. That's definitely the, the topic that people were most, that went most viral on social media. Um, yeah, so for us, like hunting is a topic pretty much everywhere. Also in India, actually, that is one of the few places that we visited where it's not a, not a topic which shows. Yeah, because you can't hunt in India. Yeah at all yeah. yeah which like shows again how like different uh, the indian attitude towards wildlife is but like every european country visited hunting was a topic sometimes it's more controlled sometimes there's a lot of illegal poaching of all kinds of animals that is a huge issue and in pakistan was the first time where we saw it as a tool to improve nature conservation so what is unique in pakistan is that in contrast with other areas where private individuals would own a reserve which they would open up for hunting. In Pakistan, there are community-owned hunting areas. So they are community-based conservation areas and hunting areas. So the community owns the land and they manage the land and all the resources that the land gives. And also they are some, like together with the local um local wildlife, wildlife department, they are also responsible for managing um, hunting licenses, for bringing hunters there, and they also share the profits that, that they get from, from uh, these licenses and from the trophy hunting. So I, I'm more familiar with how that, that's a, it's a very similar system to how it works in Tajikistan, which I'm, I'm more familiar with their system that, than I am in in pakistan but it, it's very similar mountain species and i think it, it works pr pretty in a pretty similar fashion but what was the what was what was the history there and what i'm what i want to try and understand is what was the state of wildlife conservation before they implemented that and had the funds to be able to pay for the protection of those areas mm -hmm. Yeah, hunting is very common in Pakistan uh, and it has a very long tradition. So unfortunately, that means that several ungulate species have been completely extinct, uh, like the nilgai and the black buck, which are very abundant in India. So it shows that it's made mostly due to the hunting. 
And many other species have been quite decimated. So many are threatened or vulnerable. Um, and in, in Pakistan, we're to only talking about ungulate species that are open for hunting. So no predator species or anything like that. And it was introduced in the 90s, the trophy hunting system, I think. Yeah, late 90s. Yeah. Also, actually, with cooperation of WWF, so it was clear from the beginning this is supposed to improve nature conservation in Pakistan, a country which has been ravaged by poverty and political problems since its existence. Um, so hunting also was just a means to survive for many people, a means to get food on the table. Um, yeah, and then in the 90s they wanted to to basically introduce that possibility that hunting can not only gain some meat, but a lot of money from people that are interested in hunting these specific, uh, yeah, these specific species or these specific individuals that are very interesting for them and uh, using that money in a controlled way. So whenever a license is given out, 20% of the money goes to the forest department, 80% of the money, or the wildlife department, 80% of the money goes to the local community on which which land this animal was hunted and and what is also important to to mention here is that the 80% that the community receives uh, helps them to you know like just develop their their land to set up irrigation systems to compensate for all the livestock losses that they experience throughout the year. For example, in the Himalayas, it's about the snow leopard. Um, so in this way, they also don't uh, retaliate so much because they have the means to compensate. Um, and they also can understand that protecting uh, animals, protecting horse, protecting um, mountain goats is the way for them to to you know, to sustain their livelihoods. So they are actually um, ba- basically uh, motivated to to engage in the conservation themselves. And it has been proven throughout the years that the that the markhor and uh, ibex numbers have have grown significantly because of the engagement of the local community, which is driven by the financial benefits that they get from from trophy hunting. Yeah, I know it's been a, an amazing conservation success story there from very, very low numbers historically. And, and there there's that, that, that direct economic tie where w- wildlife has a value. Whether, whether we like it or not, it'd be nice just for wildlife to exist for its intrinsic value to, to everybody. But in places like that, and I've seen this repeated the world over, particularly in places where people have very little, you need that connection with wildlife and a direct value and benefit back to local communities for them to care about it because they're mostly they're concerned about putting food on the table tomorrow and to expect somebody who's hungry or potentially is going to be hungry tomorrow to care about conservation is a very privileged western position to be in um so that, that's amazing that you got to see that and did you actually go and see some of the communities that were operating in this way yeah yeah so it's really widespread in pakistan um especially in the northern part in the Himalayas, uh, simply because most of the land there is rugged mountains, so not inhabitable 
so the only like the only things they have there, the only animals they have there are these ungulates that live high up in the mountains all year. So it's quite widespread there. And they really like they were very happy. The communities we talked to, they were they were very positive about the system. It also provides livelihoods for them, like not only through the license, but also people are hired um, as wildlife wardens, basically. They monitor the populations. Uh, then they are also helping the wildlife department to set the quotas for what can be hunted. They are helping the hunters to find the animals um, and get them out of the mountains, basically, after the hunting. And they also become tour guides, not just for hunters, but also wildlife photographers and other people. So it it developed the whole industry and the whole way for the community to to actually be engaged and, you know, like have a sustainable livelihood for the future, because these are also the areas that are heavily hit by climate change. And many of the traditional uh, ways of, of livelihoods and livings that, that they have... Um, I mean, they are used to are now uh, challenged by by the the climate change and the melting of the glaciers. So there, it's simply something very important for them to to be able to plan for the future. You know, to to be able to see their future and their their children's future in the same landscape where their ancestors grew up. Have you found the given that given it is such a controversial subject? generally speaking have you found that you've had some pushback from i mean you you're just sharing your observations more than your personal opinions you're just like well this is where we were and this is what we found which i love that um have you had any pushback from the stuff that you've posted on social media or the the article on your website luckily not not clear but of course after pakistan we returned to india and for many indian conservationists this kind of uh, stories and news are unimaginable. Uh, already um, there is the, of course, there is the, the big conflict between Pakistan and India and many people in India view Pakistan or people there um, like as, as hunters, you know. So, um, so, so I think for many people also, it was eye-opening to read our stories and to, to actually whoever had the openness and the interest to understand, they were surprised to to learn that there is actually a system that can work. And when you think about it and you think about the benefits, like, as you said, it would be great if there would be an ideal world where people could just, you know, like appreciate wildlife for their intrinsic value and local communities could somehow uh, manage their livelihoods as well. But this is a system that works there in Pakistan. And we haven't seen many other ways where communities could so fast gain uh, benefits as there in that specific system. So it was, I think it is eye-opening for, for many other countries and many other conservationists. So where are you headed next? <laughs> well... We would like to continue to Myanmar, so that would be the land way to get to Singapore. Wow, that's that's a place. Are you are you actually allowed in there right no. now? No, so that's <laughs> no, the problem. No. That's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, the borders, the land borders are closed. Uh, it's not safe as far as we know to travel in Myanmar at the moment. 
So we have to resort to the airplane. We will fly from Dhaka on the 29th of August, so in two weeks from now, to Bangkok. And then we're going to continue our journey in Southeast Asia. We still want to go north, visit Laos, Vietnam, then go back to Cambodia and Thailand and eventually down to Singapore. So there's, what, like six more countries to go. Yeah. Is there... Aside from the specific, I know that you you visited so many places and there just simply isn't enough time to go through all the projects that you've been to. But aside from the ones that we've talked about, is there one more that you want to highlight? Mm. (laughs) Tough cookie. Yeah, that's an important, that's a hard question. That's that's too hard question, man. It's just so many, you know, we cannot... I mean, it's it's, it's interesting now in Bangladesh. It's just maybe, it's not something that should receive more priority than all the other stories that we covered. I think like people should receive our, like uh, visit our website and and look through all the (laughs) stories that we covered. But it's interesting in Bangladesh, after being in the, uh, most populous country in the world. We travel to the most densely populated country in the world, basically after like Hong Kong. So Bangladesh is really extremely densely populated, and we just uh, spend a week basically in the Shundabans, which is the largest mangrove forest in the entire world. Um, it's uh, three, like two thirds uh, of it is in Bangladesh, one third is in India, and. Uh, and it was interesting there to learn about how local communities are living off um, the mangrove forest. They are still going in there. They are fishing. They are collecting crabs. They are collecting shrimps. They are going into the uh, mangrove jungle to collect honey. So many people who live really beyond the the poverty line, they they live off these areas in in extremely simple conditions. And in the meantime, they, these, this mangrove forest is, is crucial for, for you know, the, the planet. Uh, mangroves are extremely good mangrove sinks. Um, this forest is basically, uh, yeah, the par- paradise and home for many fish species, for tigers, for many deer and many other animals. So it's very, very important to protect it. Um, but also communities have such a, a big impact on on this forest that it's again the same story as we heard in other places that uh, we have to find as conservationists we have to be the bridge between the government and these local communities we have to mm, not just focus on the on the dictionary term of conservation but actually work together with local communities and, uh, and like create sustainable ways of how they can actually still uh, protect these areas, be the stewards, also gain livelihoods. And we've in the Shundabans, we have experienced this. We have uh, visited several organizations who, who are working together with communities who are creating um, local products, uh, from mangroves who are creating an eco-village and many other ways how they are 
actually indirectly contributing to nature conservation through these local communities. It's a massive challenge and probably one of the biggest challenges. I I was just in southern Tanzania in a place called Luganza and they have a, a, a massive, there's a, a game reserve there and they have a massive poaching problem. Uh, a lot of that poaching is facilitated by illegal fishing, which when you see people just pulling in their, their nets fishing, you think, well, that's not really much of a problem. They're probably just feeding their family, which is true in most instances, but they're often facilitating poachers going inside the park. And they're all, we, I mean, we caught 15 of them when I was there. They were all using nets that were of a legal size. They're taking out very, very small fish. But you will forever fight that fight unless you give them an alternative. So one of the conversations we're having there is, wouldn't it be incredible if they could build, if they, we could get some funding for, it was, I was actually working with a, an organization there called the Robin Hart Wildlife Foundation, and they're trying to get some funding, and part of that funding, they want to build a freshwater fish farm. Mm -hmm. Because if they can have a freshwater fish farm, there's less reason to go and fish in this massive lake, then you reduce the traffic, you reduce the possibility of poaching, the, the lake can recover because it's been decimated by all of the illegal netting. But without that solution or some sort of solution to the the issue at hand, you will always be fighting anti-poaching in those areas. And that's that's, that's very true. So your mangrove, I, I hear a lot of bells ringing there. It's like you can't just extract the people from the very environment that they need to survive. It's like we can drive down the, the road and go to the shops, yeah. but their shops is the mangrove. So how do you reduce the impact of people and, and a, a growing impact of people on these habitats but still make sure that they can get something out of it for their livelihood yeah yeah it's uh we've heard many like jaw-dropping stories of of the same situation similar things that you mentioned in in the Shundaban, we've uh, we've learned that uh, local fishermen started to use poisons for fishing, basically pesticides that farmers use in their farmlands. So they pour in the poison uh, upstream in a in a channel, and they wait one two hours, and then on downstream they just collect all the fish that float uh, on the top of the of the water. In another place in India, we've heard that uh, some people pour bleach into into rivers, same to fish out the fish that they will eat uh, or sell in the markets mostly. Yeah, um, it's unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle, you know. Like they have, because the demand got higher and higher for fish, they started fishing more in these places. The fish population dropped. They fished less, but the demand was still there. So they look for other ways to increase the amount of fish they can catch. And eventually they resort to things like using explosives or using poison to fish. Um, and that's the thing when you like, sometimes when, when we from afar talk about these communities and the horrible things they do to nature, like poison fishing, it sounds like they are the problem. But often the problem is that demand for products rises from cities rises from people that can afford them rather than the local population itself and then they have the choice to either fish or extract in general more and more resources or to not have any livelihoods um, and yeah it's just important to support these local communities to give them a way 
how to how to have a sustainable livelihood here there are already plenty of fish farms in Sundarbans everywhere around there the problem is that they used to use a lot of fertilizers um, a lot of fish feed a lot of antibiotics in these farms and the fields around which then pollutes the the natural area the reserved forest so it's just like there are so many different scenarios and the role of NGOs and also governmental organizations should be to find local local solutions to that. Like many people ask us, so what is your advice for us? How do we protect nature? But we cannot give somebody advice how to protect nature. The only advice we can give is listen to local experts. Because everywhere we've gone, we met people that so passionately work on these solutions and implement them. But often what they are missing is the money or the political will of decision makers. So they're facing so many obstacles to simply implement what they already know. Like oftentimes you don't need to come up with crazy new technology or like uh, completely new approaches. You just need to have the measures to actually implement what is already working. Uh, Hannah, Jonas, what an incredible adventure you've been on. Uh, and I've, I'm going to be following all your, your future adventures very closely. And, and maybe, we can, maybe we can talk again once you've done some more months of your journey. I'd love to have you back on the show and hear what you've been up to. If people want to join in and follow on your journey or support what you're doing, how's the best place to do that? They can visit our website, which is called Biking for Biodiversity 4 is the number four. Uh, bikingforbiodiversity.org but they can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under the same name Biking for Biodiversity uh, so they can connect with us they can share their experiences we are happy to talk with with everyone out there yeah and we're currently still looking for conservationists to visit in Southeast Asia so if anybody has <coughs> any ideas there we're happy about any tip <laughs> Okay, perfect. Well, I will also stick those links uh, in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic to speak to you. Um, and I look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you so much, Byron. And yeah, thank you for the chance to be here and to chat with you.